Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. In standing, take your Bibles and turn, if you will, to the Gospel of John. No, I'm only kidding. Turn to James. (laughs) Turn to the book of James. book of James, James chapter 1, and if you'll follow along as I read verses 1 through 4, James chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, beginning now in verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings, count it all joy, my brothers. When you meet various trials or meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. May the Lord bless this reading of his word. You may be seated. It is a great privilege for us to take time together on Sunday mornings to study a book of the Bible, line upon line, precept upon precept. And this morning, uh, we're beginning a new study in the book of James, which uh, is rich in spiritual dynamics. Uh, Its message is motivating. Its message is challenging and sobering. It's a book of faith, a, a book of promise, and a book of warning. And this morning I want to take time for a few introductory thoughts and then spend some time in verse 1 looking at who wrote the letter and who it was written to. And we'll get to verses 2 through 4 next week, Lord willing. The book of James is one of seven epistles along with First and Second Peter, First and Second and Third John, and Jude uh, referred to as the general epistles. And they're called general epistles because they lack a specific address. They were written to a broader group of believers and not restricted to the church in any one place. And the early church included 2nd and 3rd John with the general epistles, even though uh, these two appear to be personal letters addressed to individuals. But some would contend that these two epistles were meant for the church at large, but in order to protect the members from persecution, the apostle John addressed them to individuals. In fact, one man writing said, the elect lady and Gaius, to whom 2nd and 3rd John respectively are addressed, were probably understood to represent the church universal. So James is one of the general epistles. And if there was one book of the New Testament that has given people fits almost ever since it was written, it is the book of James. I mean, even though it was uh, from the beginning, or from the beginning, it was recognized as Scripture by many. It was slow to be accepted into the canon of Scripture. One man said, in fact, due to its brevity, 
the fact that it was addressed specifically to Jewish Christians, its lack of doctrinal content, and because it was not written by one of the twelve apostles or Paul, James was one of the last books added to the New Testament canon. The great reformer Martin Luther didn't like the book of James. He said, in comparison to the other epistles, it is a right, stry epistle, for it has no gospel character to it. Luther had little use for the book of James because it contains little teaching about the great doctrines of the Christian faith that he so passionately defended. But some of his hostility to James also stemmed from the fact that the Roman Catholic Church misuses James chapter 2 to defend justification by works. The church owes a lot to Martin Luther, uh, certainly, but like you and I, he was a fallible man, and he was wrong about the book of James. It's true that James is not a doctrinal treatise, but that certainly doesn't lessen its value. Others have also questioned whether there's any gospel in James at all. I mean, it's true James never mentions the cross. He never mentions the resurrection. He only mentions the name of Jesus twice in chapter 1, verse 1, and chapter 2, verse 1. But though there's no mention of the gospel, The grace of the gospel is seen in every chapter of this book. In James 1, we see a God who is at work in the life of believers, a God who, even in our trials, even in our darkest moments, is maturing us. In James 1, we see God as a generous giver of wisdom. In James 1, we see that God has promised a crown of life to those who love him. In James 1, we see that every good gift comes down from God. And so in James 1, we see this active, loving, giving, generous God. In James 2, we see God's particular love for the poor, the downtrodden, the outcast, and that this God makes himself a friend of those who believe. In James 3, we see that true wisdom is a gift from above, that God graciously uh, gives fools wisdom, and that is a, a wonderful argument for his grace. In James 4, God gives grace to the humble. We see God giving grace upon grace, and he gives more grace. In James 5, we learn the Lord is compassionate and merciful and, and answers prayer. And so in James, even though the gospel is not explicitly mentioned, we see the grace of the gospel. We see the grace of God operating in every chapter. We see God present and active in the lives of his children in every chapter. The the God who comes near, the God who breaks down the alienation between sinners and him and who becomes a friend of sinners. I mean, imagine a sinner standing before a holy God and God declares him to be a friend. I mean, what a, what a miracle of his grace. What a great argument for the grace of the gospel. You see, James is intent on adding to our understanding of the gospel by telling us that we live it. But faith is not merely an intellectual assent to theological facts and truths. No, it transforms our hearts and lives and therefore how we live. But he also wants us to know that our hope is in the goodness and the generosity and and the grace and the activity of our Lord. Our faith is in him and apart from him, I mean, without him, all of the commands in this little book would simply mean nothing. This little book of five chapters probably was written somewhere between 45 and 49 AD, making it the oldest of the 27 books of the New Testament. It was written from Jerusalem, where the author lived, to Jewish believers who had been scattered by persecution. 
And because it was written before Paul's writings, James discusses the subject of faith and works independently from Paul's teaching. And so James is not writing an argument against justification by faith alone in Paul's letter to the Romans, which was written later. And Paul is not refuting James in his letter to the Romans. James and Paul do not contradict each other, but rather complement each other. In the book of Romans, Paul was asking and answering the question, how is salvation received? And Paul's answer was always, by faith alone. In James, the question is, how is true saving faith manifested and and verified? And his answer always is, by works. It is received by faith, but it is manifested and verified by our works. So there's no conflict there. There's no conflict between Paul and James. In fact, there's perfect harmony. James is not advocating a works-based salvation, but the importance of living out our faith and serving the Lord according to the principles of His Word. And James wants us to understand that true saving faith is demonstrated by how you live. He wants us to understand that belief in the gospel is not an intellectual transaction, but rather a transformation of our hearts that completely alters the way that we live our lives, or it should. You know, we live out the gospel. And that being the case, this is a very practical epistle. And in this epistle, James addresses issues that confront Christians every day, such as trials, poverty, riches, materialism, partiality, the tongue, worldliness, boasting, making plans, praying, and and what to do when we're sick, among other things. The issues that James addresses in this letter are as current as this morning's news, and yet his challenges and instruction are timeless. The key verses in James are chapter 1, verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And then James chapter 2, verse 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And then James 2, 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. That's the dominant theme of James. That faith that is real, a faith that is genuine, works practically in our lives. That, that's, that's true faith. True faith is a faith that works. You could say that true faith wears work clothes. Faith wears work gloves. Faith is very active. It's a very practical kind of faith. I mean, James refers to faith in four, or 14 different times in this letter. On the other hand, this letter is also filled with commands to obey. Out of 108 verses there are in the book of James, there are nearly 60 commands. Nearly 60 commands, depending on who you read. So obedience is everywhere. You know, that's a command for, uh, you know, at least every two verses. Obedience is everywhere because obedience is a hallmark of living faith. 
And of course, we live in a day and age as soon as, when as soon as you begin to talk about obedience and, and commands and, and, and the works of the Christian life, people cry out, oh, legalism, you know, legalism, and they, and they run away. I mean, people today say Christianity is not about doing this and this and this and this, but James says, yes, it is. Yes, it is. He says, you are to be doers of the word and not hearers only. He's saying, don't just listen to the word. Don't just read the word. We're supposed to do it. We're supposed to live it out. And he says, and if you don't, your faith is dead. You don't even have faith. Now, obviously, we have to rightly and biblically understand the relationship between faith and works. But as one man said, the point of James is clear. There is a relationship between faith and works, and it's immature, shallow, and to be blunt, damning if you try to separate the two. And so this is serious stuff. The goal of James is to promote in his readers a life that is consistent with faith in Christ. He urges Christians to put their faith into practice by living out their professed devotion to Jesus because genuine faith in God must be evident in the life. Because genuine faith acts. It works. Listen, James is not not really interested in hearing your profession of faith. He wants to see your practice of the faith. He wants to see how we actually live because, listen, talk is cheap. James wants to see some results. He wants to see some action. You know, if you claim, I've come to Jesus Christ, He's my Lord and Savior, James answers, then let your life give evidence of that truth. Let your life give evidence of that truth every single day, wherever you are, in the way that you live, in the attitudes that you have at home, in the way that you love people, in the way that you treat people, and the, and the kindness that you have, and the generosity of your hearts, and the purity of your lives, and your sensitivity to the needs of other people. In other words, the way that you notice when someone has a need. You know, let your outward acts reflect the inward reality. Justify your faith before others by your good work. James is a do-this, do-that book, which, if we will take it to heart, will dynamically affect our lives at every level. James is very simple and concise. What he says is very easy to understand, but that doesn't mean it's an easy letter to read. And I say that because we're probably all going to be very uncomfortable as we go through the book of James, because it's also very straightforward, plain-spoken, and extremely convicting. And the book of James has been compared with the wisdom books in the Old Testament. In fact, some have referred to James as the Proverbs of the New Testament. And they say that because of James, because of its direct, terse, pointed, you know, convicting statements on Christian living. I mean, James is is so plain-spoken that he just steps all over our toes, stomps on them sometimes. But we need that. We need that. In this day of cheap grace and easy believism, uh, we need that. We need to be jerked back to reality. 
One author has put it this way, and this is so true. He said, there are those who talk holiness and are hypocrites. Those who make profession of perfect love and yet cannot live peaceably with their brothers. Those who are full of pious phraseology, but they fail in practical philanthropy. This letter was written for them. It may not give them much comfort, but it ought to give them much profit. The mysticism that contents itself with pious frames and phrases and comes short in actual sacrifice and devoted service will find its antidote here. The antinomianism that professes great confidence in free grace but does not recognize the necessity for corresponding purity of life needs to ponder the practical wisdom of this letter. The quietists who are content to sit and sing themselves away to everlasting bliss ought to read this epistle until they catch its bugle note of inspiration to to present activity and continuous good deeds. All who are long on theory and short on practice ought to steep themselves in the spirit of James. And since there are such people in every community and every age, the message of this letter will never grow old. And to that we can only say amen. Amen. That is true. We need God by his spirit through his word to step on our toes, to to get in our comfort zone, to make us uncomfortable with our sins, to convict us of it, and, and to spur us on to godly living. And that is exactly what this little book does. It's an exhortation to Christian living, not only as individuals, but also in the family of God. Now, You know, it's certainly a whole lot easier to draw a crowd by preaching on the next coolest topic that appeals to everyone. But you know what happens if we do that? If a pastor begins to do that, he'll start taking the parts of the Bible, uh, you know, everyone likes and tailoring it to what everyone wants to hear, creating uh, for themselves a Christianity that appeals to everyone. And when that happens, we inevitably ignore the tough parts of the Bible, the parts that confront us and convict us, the parts that cause us to be uncomfortable, or we just simply twist them out of context to fit our sinful lifestyles. The book of James is one of those tough and sometimes uncomfortable books. But the book of James is also very warmly pastoral. James refers to those he's writing to as brothers four times, as my brothers eight times, and as my beloved brothers three times. And calling them his brothers adds a, just a special note of personal identification and love. By calling them my brothers, James identified with his readers. He, you know, he's telling them, look, I'm in the same boat with you. You know, we, we all belong to Christ. We're in the same boat. They, they were brothers. They shared a relationship brought about by living faith in a common Savior who had died for their sins and brought them into the family of the forgiven. And this entire letter is evidence of James' loving pastoral concern for his fellow Christians and his determination to do all that he possibly can for their spiritual growth and well-being. So this is not only a very practical letter, it's also a warmly 
pastoral letter in which James shows us how to have a living, visible, productive faith in a fallen world. And the timeless truth that James presents is that Christians must put their faith into action because faith devoid of works is a contradiction. It's an absolute absurdity. In fact, James says it's dead faith. In other words, not a genuine faith at all. So you can talk about it all you want. But unless it's a reality in your life, then it's nothing more than just that, just talk. One commentator said in his introduction to James, few things would do more to revitalize present-day Christianity than a determined effort on the part of believers to take James seriously and to put his teachings into practice. Of course, we should take all of the commands of Scripture and put them into practice. Let's look now at verse 1. We read, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. So as we look at this letter, we see that it follows a typical pattern of that day. We have the name of the writer, the the people the letter is addressed to, and then a a word of greeting. Because remember, in those days, they wrote on scrolls. And so to keep the recipients from having to unroll the entire scroll to find out who the letter was from, they'd not only uh, write who it was to, but also who it was from at the very beginning. And we see in verse 1, the author is James. James. It's named, this book is named after its author, just like all of the the general epistles. The name James is uh, the English form of the Hebrew name Jacob. It was a very common name among the Jews of that day. In fact, there were many uh, Hebrew boys running around with the name Jacob, named after Jacob, the son of Isaac and the father of the Jews. But Jacob came to be James in English. And so the question for us this morning is, who is this James? Because the text doesn't tell us. The author identifies himself simply as James, and he doesn't give us any other details about himself except that he's a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that doesn't help us identify him. So who is he? You know, what what James are we talking about? Because there are a number of men named James in the New Testament. So who is this James? Well, we have four choices in the New Testament. There is James, the son of Alphaeus, who was one of the 12 apostles. He was also called James the Younger or James the Less, if you're reading the New American Standard in Mark 1540, and that was to distinguish him from James, the brother of John. And James, the son of Alphaeus, his name only appears in Matthew 10, Mark 3, Luke 6, and then Acts 1. Wherever there's a list of the 12 apostles, we find the name James, the son of Alphaeus. Now, it's possible that Uh, He was the brother of Matthew. Because in Mark chapter 2, verse 14, we read that Matthew, who was also known as Levi, was the son of Alphaeus. Now, we don't know if they're the same men, but if this is the same Alphaeus, who was the father of James, and Matthew and this James were brothers. But other than his name and the fact that he was one of the twelve who served Christ and went out and preached the gospel and healed the sick, we don't know anything about James, the son of Alphaeus. He's almost unknown to us. We never hear of him again after the day of Pentecost. In fact, one commentator said, this humble servant's only distinguishing mark 
is his obscurity. <laughs> and the fact that the author of this epistle could refer to himself simply as James with no distinguishing titles or other descriptive information indicates that he was very well known to the early church at that time. And that is why few would view James, the son of Alphaeus, as the author of this epistle. I mean, we have no evidence for that, and there doesn't seem to be any reason to credit this James with writing this letter. A second James in the New Testament is James, the father of Judas. I mean, if James, the son of Alphaeus, was obscure, this man is even more obscure. James, the father of Judas, not Iscariot. James, the father of Judas, who was also one of the apostles. And little is known about the apostle, this apostle Judas, who was also called Thaddeus by Matthew. And apart from the list of the apostles, he made only one appearance in the New Testament. He asked Jesus a question in the upper room. In John 14, 22, we read, Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, said to Jesus, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And apart from the list of the apostles and, and this statement in John 14, we know nothing about the apostle Judas, the son of James, and we know far, far less about his father, James. He's a very, very obscure James. In fact, we know absolutely nothing about him, so there's no reason whatsoever to consider him as the writer of this epistle. The third James, and probably the one that is most familiar to all of us, is James, the son of Zebedee and the older brother of John the Apostle. He and John were partners in a fishing business when Jesus called them to become his disciples. James, uh, the son of Zebedee, was one of the inner circle, those closest to Jesus, along with Peter and his brother John. In the gospel record, it's interesting to note that James never appears alone. He was always with his brother John, or there were occasions when it was Peter, James, and John, but he was never alone. And the only time this James appears alone in Scripture is when he was martyred. James, the, the brother of John, was the first apostle to be martyred. He wasn't the first martyr. Stephen was the first martyr, but James was the first apostle to be martyred. He was executed by Herod, and you can read about it in Acts chapter 12. James died as a martyr in the year 44 AD, and since most scholars believe that the book of James was written at a later date, it would not have been possible for him to write this epistle. He would have been in heaven at that time. So that leaves us with one more James, the fourth James, who is the most likely author of this epistle, and that is James, the half-brother of Jesus. And we say half-brother because while he and Jesus had the same mother, they certainly did not have the same father. Jesus had no earthly father. And you'll remember that Mary was a virgin when Jesus was conceived in her womb by the Holy Spirit, and she remained a virgin until after Jesus was born. You say, how do we know? Well, Matthew 1.18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, and that is specifically speaking about before they ever had any sexual contact at all, so before Mary and Joseph ever had any sexual relations, Mary was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Then in Matthew 1, verses 24 and 25, we're told, He, Joseph, took his wife, but knew her not. Again, he had no sexual relations with her until it says she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. 
So Mary remained a virgin until after Jesus was born. And then following the birth of Christ, Mary and Joseph enjoyed the normal sexual relations between a husband and his wife. And contrary to the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, Mary was not a perpetual virgin. How many virgins do you know who've had six children? (laughs) After Jesus was born, we know from Scripture that Mary and Joseph had other children. John chapter 2, verse 12. After this, he, Jesus, went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus was teaching, we're told in verses 31 and 32, and his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And you'll find the parallel to that in Luke 8, 19, and Matthew 12, 46 and 47. And then in Mark chapter 6, we read that Jesus came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joses, and Judas, and Simon, four brothers? Are not his sisters, plural, here with us? And they took offense at him. And the parallel to this is in Matthew 12, where, and it, the only difference there is it says, and are not all his sisters with us. And these passages mention Jesus' brothers. And Mark 6 and Matthew 12 mention his sisters, plural, meaning there were at least two sisters. And the point is simply that Jesus had brothers and sisters. And the fact that when the brothers are mentioned by name, James is always first indicates that he was the older of the other siblings. And so next to Jesus, James was the second oldest son. But James and his brothers didn't believe in Jesus. And we're told as much in John chapter 7, verse 5. It says, for not even his brothers believed in him. I mean, they lived with him. They'd been raised with him from their childhood, but they, they didn't believe in him. In fact, they, they mocked him. They thought he was crazy, out of his mind. They, they wanted to stop his bizarre behavior. But after the Gospels, we see our Lord's brothers mentioned again in Acts chapter 1, verse 14. This is what we read there. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and, it says, his brothers. His brothers. After Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, we see that his brothers, at least two of them, because it's plural, brothers, at least two of them anyway, are in the upper room with the apostles and and others who had gathered there. Well, what brought about the change from unbelief to faith in Jesus' brothers? Well, as far as James is concerned, this is what we read in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 5 to 7. The Apostle Paul is, is writing about Christ's post-resurrection appearances. And he says, beginning in 1 Corinthians 5, 15, that he appeared to Cephas, or to Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then verse 7 says, then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. 
So Paul tells us there that the Lord Jesus revealed himself to James in a personal post-resurrection revelation. And that, no doubt, is how and when James came to have faith in his brother, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we also know that one of Jesus' other brothers, Jude, came to faith in Christ, and he wrote the epistle that bears his name. In Jude 1, first verse, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. And so we, so we know at least two of our Lord's brothers came to have faith in him as their Lord and their Messiah. And then James went on to become a part of the church in Jerusalem, and, and very quickly he rose to a place of leadership. In today's terms, we would say that James became the senior pastor of the first church in Jerusalem. In Galatians 2.9, the Apostle Paul called James a pillar. In Acts chapter 12, when an angel delivered Peter from prison, guess who he sent a special message to? James. It was James that led and presided over the Jerusalem council in Acts 15, leading in the, de- in the decision about Gentile evangelism. And after Paul spoke, it was James who addressed the council and, and gave his judgments as to what they should do. And they followed James' advice. I mean, following that council, James was one of the three leaders in the church who commissioned Paul and Barnabas to take the gospel to the Gentiles. So James is the one that report goes to. James is the one uh, leading the council in Jerusalem. He is the prominent leader of the church in Jerusalem. And the last time we see James is in Acts chapter 21 when Paul made another visit to Jerusalem. And there in verses 21, or in chapter 21, verses 17 and 18, we read, when we had come, Paul says, when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. So again, we see the importance of James. James presiding in the presiding role. It it was to James that Paul brought greetings and the special love offering from the Gentiles. It was to to James that these were brought. And at at this meeting in James or with James in Acts chapter 21, in an attempt to exonerate Paul from charges that he had been encouraging Jews to abandon their customs after coming to faith in Christ. James and the other elders in Jerusalem encouraged Paul to participate in a purity ritual at the temple. And from this we learn that James, a Jewish Christian living in in Jerusalem and leading the, the Jewish believers, continued to keep the law as a testimony to his fellow Jews because the last thing he wanted was for his genuine faith in Jesus as Messiah to be maligned because he and his people abruptly turned their backs on the law of Moses. And though the law was never a means of salvation, James and for James and, and many Jewish believers, the law was a means of testimony to unbelieving Jews that their faith empowered them to do good works. James continued to live and, and teach in Jerusalem, convincing many Jews and visitors that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And he pastored the, the Jerusalem church through some extremely difficult times and, and harsh realities. In that day, many in the church were in extreme poverty. 
Opposition, persecution, and rejection were the norm rather than the exception. I mean, there were no flowery beds of ease for these believers. But James remained faithful to his calling, guiding and and directing the church through these difficulties. I mean, he was a godly, deeply spiritual man, highly esteemed for his personal piety. In fact, he became known as James the Just or James the Righteous, because of his well-known holiness. The tradition says that that James spent so much time in the temple kneeling in prayer that he was nicknamed Old Camel Knees. He had calluses on his knees. James, the brother of our Lord and the leader of the church in Jerusalem, was very well known. He was greatly, greatly respected in the early church which is no doubt why he identified himself here only as James, because he needed no other introduction. Everyone in that day knew exactly who he was. And James remained in Jerusalem, leading and ministering in the church until his uh, genuine, persevering faith eventually brought about his death. And his faith in Christ demonstrated through good works, strengthened through suffering, and and seasoned with God-given wisdom drew the anger and the rage of the increasingly jealous religious elite. And his words and works attracted thousands of Jews to Christ, and and the anti-Christian powers in Jerusalem eventually had had their fill of him. The Bible doesn't give us any details about James' death, but the ancient church historian Eusebius describes the events leading up to James' final confrontation with his opponents. Let me read it to you. But after Paul, in consequence of his appeal to Caesar, had been sent to Rome by Festus, the Jews, being frustrated in their hope of entrapping him by the snares which they had laid for him, turned against James, the brother of the Lord. Leading him into their midst, they demanded of him that he should renounce faith in Christ in the presence of all the people. But contrary to the opinion of all, with a clear voice and with greater boldness than they had anticipated, James spoke out before the whole multitude and confessed that our Savior and Lord Jesus is the Son of God. But they were unable to bear longer the testimony of the man who, on account of the excellence of ascetic virtue and of piety which he exhibited in his life, was esteemed by all as the most just of men, and consequently they slew him. Josephus says that James was simply stoned, but Eusebius says that James was thrown from the pinnacle of the temple and then he was beaten to death with clubs. I mean, whatever the details of his brutal and unjust execution. James, the brother of our Lord, was martyred for his faith in Jerusalem in 62 A.D. So James, the the second oldest son of Joseph and Mary, who was probably happy to see Jesus, his strange older brother, leave home when he did. I mean, James, who throughout the Gospels was an unbeliever and a skeptic who thought his brother was out of his mind, James, who rejected any idea that his brother was more than simply his brother, didn't stay that way. Because when the risen Christ, his risen older brother, appeared to him, perhaps putting his arms around his younger brother and and whispering words of encouragement and love, I mean, James knew that he was the Messiah, 
And he put his trust in Christ alone for salvation. And James lived out that faith in grateful, obedient service to his Lord and Master. And then he willingly laid down his life in death for Jesus' sake. And James was godly, faithful, fiercely passionate. Yet he was also a humble man. And we see his humility here in the way that he introduces himself. Look back at the verse. James, a servant. I mean, in light of James' ancestry, in light of his family ties, his position and prominence, imagine how he could have started this letter. James, of the tribe of Judah, of the house of David, of the royal lineage of the kings of Judah. Or James, Mary's son, the eldest of the brothers of Jesus, the incarnate Son of God. Or James, senior pastor of the first Christian church of the world in Jerusalem. You know, James, prominent associate of Peter, James, John, Paul, and the rest of the apostles. I mean, James, look, he could have dropped all kinds of names, pulled rank, and and impressed his readers with all kinds of egotistical titles. But as we'll see in this book, that kind of pride is one of the things that James strongly opposes. I mean, that may be the way people in this, you know, me first world do things, but but not James. You see, the way we introduce ourselves to others, as well as the way we like others to introduce introduce us, says an awful lot about us. James' introduction of himself indicates great humility on his part, and it reminds us of his devotion and worship of Christ. And it speaks to the fact that James understood that a spiritual relationship to Jesus Christ is the most important thing. He simply refers to himself as a servant. And this word servant, this is just a polite mistranslation of the Greek word doulos which literally means slave, not servant. Does not mean servant. The Greek language had a half dozen words for servant, but doulos was not one of them. But to avoid any association with the horrible, grotesque practice of slavery in this country, which incited our civil war, most translators translate doulos with the less offensive term servant or bondservant. But it really and literally means slave. In fact, it's, it means one who is born into slavery. A slave from birth. Now, we don't live in a slave culture. And so we miss the impact of, of such a title. A slave had absolutely no rights of his own. I mean, all of his rights were held in the hands of his owner. He was deprived of all personal freedom and totally under the control of his master and absolute obedience and loyalty to his master who provided him with food, clothing, and housing was required of every slave. The slave existed solely for the purpose of carrying out the wishes and desires of his master. So you see, loved ones, James described himself as a slave because he he understood what he was. He was a slave by the new birth. He was born again into slavery by faith 
in Christ. Before he was saved, he was a slave to sin, just like the rest of mankind. But when by grace through faith he trusted in Christ alone for salvation, he was set free from the power of sin and the penalty of sin, and he became a slave of righteousness. He became a slave of Christ. And James understood that he existed solely for the purpose of carrying out the desires of another, God himself. And James understood that God did not exist to serve him, but rather he to serve God. I mean, it sounds like a horrible thing to be a slave. And of course, to be uh, enslaved by another human being would be absolutely horrible. But it's not a terrible thing to be a slave of God. In fact, as one man said, life's greatest meaning and its greatest joy lie in this kind of servanthood. But sadly and and tragically, many professed Christians today try to turn Christianity on its head by making it a matter of God serving them instead of them serving God. Loved ones, listen, we must understand that we are here. We exist as believers in this world to serve God for His glory. I mean, Christ died for us so that we who live might no longer live for ourselves, but for Him who for our sake died and was raised. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 15. As Christians, we are not our own. You know, we have been bought with the price. God redeemed us. He bought us from the slave market of sin. And so we're no longer slaves of sin, but slaves of God. We belong to Him, lock, stock, and barrel. Paul said in Romans 6.22, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. You see, we are either slaves to sin or slaves to Jesus Christ. There are no other choices. We've been made free from sin, and having been freed from sin, we're enslaved to God. And we have a new life and a new end, and that is holiness, and that leads to eternal life. And the incredibly wonderful thing is that to be a slave of Jesus Christ is to know true freedom. Listen, you and I will never have a higher privilege than being nothing but a slave, a servant of God. To be be a servant of the Lord is a great and glorious privilege. And it's time that the church of Jesus Christ in this country remember that and start to live like that. You know, to believing Jews in the Old Testament to be a slave of God was a title of honor. One commentator noted that in the Old Testament, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Job, Moses, Joshua, Caleb, David, Isaiah, and Daniel are described as God's servants or God's slaves. I mean, among Christians, the idea of being a slave of Christ is is not a position of humiliation, but a place of honor. Why? Well, because our Lord and Master humbled Himself to a degree that we cannot begin to comprehend when He stepped out of eternity into time and came to earth in the form of a slave. Philippians 2.7 tells us that He, Jesus, emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant. That's our word, doulos. By taking the form of a slave. 
Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He died a slave's death. And listen, loved ones, we are never more like our Lord Jesus than when we humbly and willingly serve him. And we are never more unlike him when we don't serve, when we don't serve God. You see, the early Christians understood more than we do today that Christians are to commit themselves to Jesus Christ as their absolute divine master, just as an actual slave. That is the essence of the believer's true relationship to God. We are wholly owned by him and totally dependent upon him. But listen, there is nothing servile about our service to God and His Son because God treats us with such amazing goodness and kindness and and grace and He actually adopts us into His family. And so while we would rightly call ourselves servants or slaves, He calls us sons and daughters and friends. There's no greater tribute to a believer than to be known as God's obedient, humble, and loyal slave. James' identity was already known to the church at large. And so he says nothing about his human relationship to Jesus, only about his spiritual relationship. He describes himself as a slave, a servant of God. And his letter is about this servant-lord relationship in which all Christians are to persevere. I mean, along the way, true servants of the Lord will will have to put their servanthood into practice in the midst of suffering and, and trial and tribulation and in other life issues that James will address. So at the very start of of this letter, James identified himself as one who self-consciously accepted this way of life, the, the life of servanthood for himself. I mean, it was only his servanthood to the Lord Jesus Christ that mattered to him here. And James makes it a point to say that he's not just anyone's servant, but rather he says he is a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James was the slave of two masters, but that's not a problem because they're co-equal, they're one. First, God, meaning the Father, God the Father. Second, of the Lord Jesus Christ, meaning God the Son. I mean, this is the full name of the Son. Lord is the title. And the Jews normally reserved, uh, this is the title that the Jews normally reserve for the name of God because they were afraid of taking God's name in vain. And so instead of pronouncing it, they would just substitute the term Lord. And this is what James calls Jesus. It emphasizes his deity. In fact, by mentioning God and Jesus Christ on equal terms and adding Lord to Jesus, James is doing nothing less than attributing deity to Christ. So he is the Lord. And then secondly, Jesus, which is his human name, reminds us of his humanity. It's the equivalent of the Old Testament name Joshua and was a very common name in biblical times. The name Jesus means the Lord is salvation thus emphasizing his work of redemption. Christ is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Messiah, the anointed one. And for Jewish readers, the term Christ meant that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament messianic promises. And so for James in the early church, the name Jesus Christ embodied the truth that the messianic redemption foretold in Scripture was realized in the incarnate Jesus. 
And to identify Jesus Christ as Lord was a radical statement in James' time. Radical. Because to the Jews it was blasphemous because no one could be called Lord. And to the Romans it was treason against the authority of the emperor. But to everyone who believed in Jesus as Messiah and Lord, it was a sign of giving Christ control over their lives, careers, their families, and, and their ultimate destiny. And thousands of believers literally lost their lives in unspeakably horrible ways because they would not take back the statement, Jesus is Lord. I mean, think about that. All you, would have, all you have to say, Christian, or all you have to do, Christian, is take back your statement, Jesus is Lord. If you don't, you're going to die in a horribly unspeakable way. And they refused. Today, people can't even get the church. There are few places in the world today where claiming Jesus as Lord is, is openly forbidden. There are a few, but not very many, and it's mostly in countries and territories which are under Islamic control, and in some areas controlled by radical Hindus. But it's not the case in most of the world, so we have to ask, well, why is that? Well, I don't believe for one moment it's because the world has become a better place. Right? It's more likely that the world has simply found out that Believers today don't quite mean it as seriously and as completely when they say Jesus is Lord as the early believers did. And the biggest difference is that the early Christians backed up what they said with their very lives. While today Jesus is Lord, it's, it's a cliche, it's a slogan, it's a t-shirt or a bumper sticker. The unspoken question of the entire letter of James is this. To what degree will you be a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ? And all of us need to ask ourselves, to what degree are we a servant, are we a slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ? Are we living our lives totally dependent upon him? Are we living our lives with the mindset that we are wholly at the master's disposal? That he owns us and everything we have and could require our lives and everything we have uh, in an instant? To what degree are we servants, slaves of God and the Lord Jesus Christ? You know, many a man will proclaim uh, his faithfulness, but really a, a faithful man, who can find? James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and who, is he, who is he writing to? Who are the recipients in this letter? Well, originally, it says, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. The term 12 tribes was a common New Testament title for Jews, and it can only mean the people of Israel, the Jewish nation. 
And the word dispersion literally means scattering or the scattered. It is a technical term used to identify all the Jews living in any place in the world outside of Israel. And of course, as most of you are aware, the Jews' scattering known as the Diaspora began in 722 B.C. when the Assyrians deported the ten northern tribes. And then later the southern tribes suffered the same fate when the Babylonians took them captive in 586. Because of this, Jews were spread all over Mesopotamia, around the Mediterranean, and into Asia Minor and Europe. So James writes primarily to those Jews who lived outside of Israel, Jews who were scattered all over the face of the earth. But the contents of the letter, as well as the fact that James continually addresses his readers as brothers, indicates to us that he is writing to a particular portion of the scattered Jews. He is writing to those who had accepted Christ as their Messiah and Lord and Savior. And it is likely that most of those Jewish believers were converted in or near Jerusalem and and were perhaps members of the church in Jerusalem and and had at one time been under James' pastoral care. Others may have been Jews from every nation of the then-known world who had come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost and were converted on the day of Pentecost and then remained in Jerusalem following their conversion to be a part of the new church. But then following the martyrdom of Stephen in Acts chapter 8, we're told that there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem and they, the believers who were most all Jewish, The Jewish Christians were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And so in in response to the persecution which was being led by Saul, the Jewish believers fled first to Judea and Samaria, and then then to Jewish communities around the Mediterranean, because Acts 11.19 says they traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. And tragically, having left the security of home, these Jewish Christians weren't taken in, were not taken in by their Jewish kinsmen because they were Christians. And instead, they were rejected by their kinsmen. They were persecuted. They were denied work, refused help, and left in the dire straits of poverty. They were outcast, you know, refused protection by the Jewish community. And And so to make matters even worse, as one commentator noted, these Jewish Christians were also exploited by the Gentiles. No, they weren't protected by the Jewish community, so they were exploited by the Gentiles. They were homeless and disenfranchised. They were robbed of what possessions they had, hauled into court, subjected to the Gentile elite. They had less standing than slaves. They became religious, social, and economic pariahs. And as to these... Jewish Christians, persecuted, mistreated, you know, these ex-members of James' congregation that Pastor James sends this letter. Apparently, word got back to James of some of the difficulties his Jewish brothers and sisters were encountering, you know, adversity, affliction from without, conflicts within. Some were lapsing into a superficial, formal religion that professed orthodox belief, but practiced selfish, ungodly lifestyles. 
And as a pastor, James writes to these scattered Jewish believers, and he he begins right off the bat with a series of of practical admonitions and continues on nonstop all the way to the end of the letter. Because again, he wants to show them and us how to live a, or how to have a living, visible, productive faith, even in the midst of a fallen world, even in the midst of persecution and suffering. And he exhorts them that true faith shows itself in practical godly living. And he develops several themes, endurance through trials, the dangers of riches and encouragement to the poor, law, the law and love, faith and works, the coming of the Lord and, and humility. But his main point is that true biblical faith works. His goal is to promote a life consistent with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he begins with a conventional opening, his name, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then the recipients, the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And then finally, uh, there's a word of greeting. I mean, to say that James was content with a simple introduction and simple greeting is kind of an understatement. It's one word. Look, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in dispersion, greetings. No grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul put, I think, in every one of his letters. No, with James, it's just, Greetings. <laughs> but that's how James writes this entire letter. He doesn't waste words. He just gets right to the point. And so the very first word that James directly addresses to persecuted, troubled, hard-pressed believers is greetings. And though that was a common form of official greeting at that time, The Greek word translated here, greetings, literally means to rejoice or be rejoicing, be glad. And a form of this word is found only one other time in the entire New Testament. It's in Acts chapter 15, verses 23 to 29, which contains the letter written by James. So both times it's used, it's used by James. So his first message to his readers, his suffering readers, is to rejoice. Rejoice in whatever state they're in because their lives are guided not by accident, but by God. I mean, James has some pretty straightforward things to say later on. You know, he doesn't pull his punches when when pointing out things that need to be put right in the lives of his believers because he was a good pastor. But he begins on a note of joy. He encourages his readers to look up, just as Jesus did when he told his hearers in Matthew 5, 11 and 12, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Why? For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And we'll find throughout uh, the book of James that uh, though James was an unbeliever during, in, during the time of the Gospels, he must have listened to Jesus because there are so many things uh, that James says that, that uh, look like they're taken right from the Sermon on the Mount. James is going to develop uh, 
this theme later, but, it, but his opening word really crystallizes it perfectly. Whatever the circumstances, the Christian can rejoice and face the future with confidence, assured of the eternal faithfulness of God. And so with that opening salutation of only 15 words in the Greek text, which makes it one of the shortest greetings in the New Testament. James begins his epistle with the first theme of Christian trials, and he does so with the words, count it all joy. But that's for next time, Lord willing. In closing, imagine what it would be like to receive a letter from someone who was a blood relative of the Lord Jesus, someone who lived in the same house, probably shared a bed with him as a boy, grew up with him, saw him under all kinds of domestic situations and pressures. Well, that is exactly what we have in the New Testament book or letter known as James. And this letter is an absolute treasure for the church. And beyond the value that it has because of James' intimate family relationship with Jesus, this letter, this letter was written under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And this means that what James says to the, to the church is in reality what his Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, says to the church. And so we, you and I, must receive it as it is in truth. The very words of God himself to all believers in every age. I mean, written, one, one man said, written by a man who could have dropped the name above all names, this simple, straightforward greeting sets the tone for a letter that assaults our natural human tendencies towards sin and selfishness with a radical message of authenticity and humility. James is a book I think that you will love for its practical teaching. But, as I said at the beginning, you will also find it to be a little bit uncomfortable because of its directness. You will also find it very convicting if you're honest. And if you and I will humbly and prayerfully ask the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of our understanding, to give us humble, teachable hearts, to apply the word to our hearts and then enable us to apply what we learn in our lives, then we will not be the same at the end of this study. But we have to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Loved ones, there are a lot of people, uh, professed Christians in churches today, who are hearers and not doers. They may be very orthodox in what they believe. They may be able to spout off theological truths right and left. But it's not a reality in their lives. And James says that's a dead faith. That's not even a genuine faith. That's nothing but just religion. And religion damns. It kills. We want to be doers of the word and not hearers only. We don't want to be deceived, do we? And by the grace and mercy of God, we will not be. Let's stand and pray. 
behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening. And may God richly bless you. Growing